Cuddle up on the sofa. It's winter on Monocle 24 and you're listening to Winter Weekend. Today, however, we're taking a break from the London chill and jetting off somewhere rather warmer. Sharjah is the world book capital for 2019 and I was in the United Arab Emirates for the Sharjah Book Fair. While I was in the region, I had an artistic treat which I'd like to share with you. I'll take you to the Sharjah Institute for Heritage. I think the heritage is the number one. And then the art, then the other things coming. But the heritage is number one. To meet the Shaker in charge of the Sharjah Art Foundation. I saw artists from the global south talking about politics, talking about change. And I thought, why do I have to go to Germany to see this? And we'll begin in the stunningly designed Louvre Abu Dhabi. I'm Georgina Godwin. Your winter weekend starts now. The Louvre Abu Dhabi is an art and civilization museum and part of a 30-year agreement between the city of Abu Dhabi and the French government. Artworks from around the world are showcased at the museum with particular focus placed upon bridging the gap between Eastern and Western art. The stunning building was designed by Jean Novel. Emma Cantwell showed me around. This is the Louvre Abu Dhabi. We're standing under Jean Nouvel's iconic dome. It's uh, eight layers of steel, overlapping steel, and uh, 7,850 unique stars that are overlaid to create this fantastic rain of light pattern. And as the sun moves across the museum throughout the day, you'll see this dappling light throughout the museum. So he was very much inspired by this place. So you'll see that it's a low-lying sort of souk, Medina-like formation. And as you go through the galleries, you really do feel that sort of winding uh, experience with surprises as you go through the galleries. Everything's very much playing on light. So it's very white. It's very sort of serene and calm. Even on busy days, there's a lot of open promenade space. We walk sort of this way, you'll see totally that we're surrounded by the sea. So the museum, when you're in the galleries, you'll be continually seeing the water surrounding you throughout the, the walk. So we have the galleries, we have temporary exhibition spaces. So we have two blockbuster exhibitions at the moment, a children's museum with real artwork. We have a, an amazing cafe here, again on the water, and we will be opening a Fouquet's restaurant in uh, January 2020, which is this space here, as well as an auditorium that seats about 260. How must it be for you? I mean, you work here and in fact you started working here before the building was complete. You must have seen this all just gradually come to life. I mean, we used to say we're going to site and uh, in those days VIPs used to get to see a... Uh, we, we, we climbed a few stairs and you could oversee a major construction site at the time, which was... Uh, which is fantastic that it's come. We came to the site to see what we called the flooding when uh, the sea walls were let down and the water started to sort of surround the museum, which in itself was just a phenomenal experience. And then of course we have artists coming, an amazing installation you see here by Jenny Holzer and these ones here by Giuseppe Pannone. So we had the artists coming, collaborating with us, watching these things installed, the Rodin sculpture. So each of these has a story and a, a memory attached to it, which uh, it's ama been an amazing experience. And for you now dealing with it day to day, walking through this space? Yeah, I have to say uh, 
even on a on a busy day at work to come out here it's such a sort of calm and serene place and uh, Equally rewarding is when you arrive to the museum and see large groups of children here because that really is what this project is about. So a major achievement for us is that already half of the staff working for the museum are UAE nationals, which is an amazing uh, development because uh, it means that there are degrees that they can study, they've had the professional experience. And similarly, when you see Emiratis in the museum enjoying, that's, that was the idea behind this, that it was a, a gift to future generations. So the museum is now two years old, lots of local people enjoying it, but I see also a lot of tourists. How is that going? How has it grown? And what sort of people are you attracting? It's very diverse. Uh, I always tell the story that our colleagues at the Louvre are so fascinated that we have a large number of Chinese and Indians, as well as French people, of course, but it's hugely diverse. And that is normal. I mean, if you live in Abu Dhabi, we have uh, 190 nationalities living here in the city. So it's very multicultural and they bring with them visitors. Uh, it's also a major hub uh, for a lot of air traffic coming through the region. And our visitor figures are accordingly very diverse. But you'll hear, you know, a very diverse number of languages as you walk around the museum. We're in the, uh, the first room of the Louvre Abu Dhabi galleries and uh, this room was really designed to give a very visual overview of what we intend to do throughout the, uh, the parkour of the museum. So you'll see here the coastline of Abu Dhabi and engraved in the native language are all of the acquisitions in the collection. So Louvre Abu Dhabi has its own collection. Uh, we've been acquiring since 2009 and uh, what you see in the galleries, uh, half of that is Louvre Abu Dhabi's collection. And we also, thanks to an amazing partnership with the French government, are able to borrow from 13 other French museums. So you'll see major loans from the Louvre, from Musée d'Orsay. We've just installed an amazing sculpture by Rodin called the Finca from the Rodin Museum in Paris. You'll get to see that as you walk through. But really here in the first room, uh, we give visitors, whether you're interested in art or not, a very visual understanding of some key concepts that we see throughout. So here we see the first ever Flintstones on continents that had never met and we ask why are we doing something so similar. Here we see gold funerary masks and again these civilizations had never connected or exchanged so what is it that brings us to do very similar things? We explore the concept of motherhood, the dance, the ewers storing uh, water for sacred purposes. And that's kind of the theme throughout the museum. So as you go through, it's a chronological thematic museum. And uh, we really show you points of intersection, sometimes similarities, sometimes differences. But you see these connections as you go throughout the museum in 12 chapters. 10,000 years of luxury. Tell me a little bit about that. So we've opened 10,000 years of luxury just last week, actually. and. Uh, it's the, the concept uh, that the curator had come up with was really to explore what has defined luxury, what made luxury luxurious, and how has that changed uh, across the ages. So we begin with a very tiny pearl, which is the oldest uh, pearl known to man, which was found off an island in Abu Dhabi. And we move right through to Haute Couture in uh, modern day, where you see all the major fashion houses there with their delights. So we go through a magnificent sort of treasure trove of stories throughout, you know, the beginning of sort of fashion, uh, interior design, um, art, you know, you name it, and, and it's covered in this exhibition. 
and uh, I don't want to give too much away but there is a beautiful hourglass at the end with the most spectacular view of the sea from the museum where you really are asked to consider what is what is luxury in this day and age and and the idea being sort of uh, time. I'm really impressed by the fact that you're not just putting a load of beautiful objects out there for people to look at. You are interrogating them. You're in a discussion with, with the audience members and, and indeed the pieces are in a kind of narration with each other too. Yes, yes. So uh, again, sort of uh, playing with this idea of us being a universal museum, this is what our exhibitions do. So in a very similar way that you see in the galleries, things from different civilizations and eras put next to each other, you will also see the same in the luxury exhibition. Tell me about the, uh, the other temporary exhibition that you have on at the moment. So we have an exhibition called Rendezvous in Paris, Picasso, Chagall and Mogliani, which will run until uh, December. And uh, it's at a period in art history called the School of Paris, where a lot of emigrants descended on Paris as a place where they could be free and practice their arts. And uh, they were spending time in the cafes and in salons. Uh, and really, we see the birth of Cubism, of Fauvism. And uh, you take this very colorful path through this amazing period in art history, a lot of female artists. And again, the work is, is fantastic. So for us to have the likes of uh, Picasso and Mogliani here, I think it's the first time this number of artworks has been shown. So it's approximately 85 artworks from that period is major and very exciting for people living here to come and see. Mm -hmm. Now, you were saying that you have access to works from 13 different institutions in France. I wonder how closely you work with Louvre Paris and, and if there is a kind of sort of a baseline, for instance, of, I don't know, standards that you have to stick to or, or, or something like that. So we've always, from, from the beginning of the intergovernmental agreement, we've always been an international institution. So we operate with sort of best practice international museum standards, of course, we work very closely with the Louvre because we loan the name of the, the museum, but we collaborate very closely with all of the French museums and actually I think for them this is something exciting is that it's a chance for them to do new things in, uh, you know, their works are in, in dialogue with each other that may not be possible operating in isolation in France. Uh, so it's a fantastic opportunity and a way to see or to reinterpret uh, the works in their collections. Now, as the museum reaches its second birthday, what are you looking ahead to? How do you see its growth? So there's uh, an enormous amount of programming that's happening, of course, to really look at, look at our audiences. But I think uh, maintaining our visitor numbers and ensuring that people always have something new to see and to do here. We see from uh, sort of the research we do with our public that they're very proud of the museum and uh, we want that to be something that continues. But, you know, it's important that we have uh, the excellence that we show in the galleries, the opportunity to come back with the exhibitions. We open a new restaurant, which will be a Fouquet's in, uh, in 2020, which allows, uh, you know, it's a Michelin star chef who's designing the, the menu for that, so that will be such a premium experience. But also things like our children's museum, we work very closely with schools, we have a program, an outreach program where we're bringing in orphans, people of determination, people with special needs, the museum has to be accessible to all. And I think the sort of fulfilment of that plan and the offer to everybody is really what we're, we're proud of. Emma Cantwell at the Louvre Abu Dhabi, as well as the permanent collection, the exhibition 10,000 Years of Luxury is on now. You're listening to The Winter Weekend, where we're giving you a taste of summer to alleviate the chill.
I'm Georgina Godwin, and I've been to meet the remarkable Sheikha Hur al-Kasimi, President and Director of Sharjah Art Foundation, an organisation, creative hub and driving force she's built up herself, which is an artistic powerhouse in the region. The Sharjah Art Foundation actually started as Sharjah Biennial in 1993. It was in 2002 that I took over and uh, we started organizing a lot of uh, projects alongside the Biennial, but I wanted the Biennial to have its own identity and therefore we decided to create an umbrella organization called the Sharjah Art Foundation. And so what does it take care of? It takes care of the Biennial, an annual conference called the March Meeting, uh, we work on publications. We have an annual artist book fair. We have uh, a music program, a film festival, a performance program, uh, year-round exhibitions, a community program, and a full educational program. Yeah, it's absolutely enormous. What does the community uh, program entail? So we wanted to have a community program because it wasn't only about education, because education can seem a little bit condescending or more about coming to take classes. And sometimes you just want people to inhabit the area, feel like this place is theirs and come together. And they're not coming to learn something, but they're coming together to create something. So we have a community program and an education program. And in terms of your exhibitions, is there one permanent show or do you have several revolving exhibitions? We have probably about, I would say, 11 exhibitions a year at least, except when we have the biennial that takes over a lot of the spaces in March. So that's one major exhibition and we have exhibitions in November and some uh, during the summer. As you'll see we have many venues and the exhibitions are in different venues. Uh, we also have spaces outside the city centre of Sharjah so it's important for me to inhabit all parts of the Emirate of Sharjah so we have a factory on the east coast that we've been using for exhibitions and it's going to undergo a full refurb very soon and we have another factory in another coastal town and an old cinema from the 70s that we're renovating, the old bakery slash co-op that looks like a flying saucer called the Flying Saucer, which we've renovated and turned into an exhibition space. We're undergoing a second renovation because we tried it and now we feel we need more space for the community to inhabit, not just see the exhibition and leave. So we're digging out a basement to create a social space with a library and a coffee shop so that the, the dome at the top, the flying saucer, basically stays as this brutalist shell that can be used in different ways. Who are your consumers, if you like? We don't have consumers. We're non-for-profit. Non <laughs> but we have everybody, to be honest. We've had artists who've worked with sailors on the dock to artists who've worked with construction workers. Every, they all know who we are. They come to our exhibitions. We're very inclusive. Uh, we don't like things that are exclusive and VIP and all of that stuff. Children. Children attend all of our programs, especially the neighborhood children. Uh, and they've grown up with it. Uh, I've been doing this for 17 years now, so I've seen a huge shift in the way things are from when I started um, culturally. And also our team has grown. I started with a handful of people and now we're over 300 people at Sharjah Art Foundation. What's your interaction with Sharjah City of Books and also the Book Fair? Well, we have a presence with the Book Fair and for a long time I wanted to create something around an artist book fair after the MoMA PS1 model, since I've been on the, the board of MoMA PS1 for about 10 years now, I think. So I tried to do that within the fair uh, for a few years, but decided to host it 
uh, separately because the way our environment is is very different from a trade fair. It's in a courtyard, it's very low-key, it's... Uh, it allows space for thinking. So we had our first edition of what we call Focal Point uh, last November, and now it's opening on the 15th of November. So, I mean, you've got a really packed program here. Yes, and people are always asking for more. So it's really good. <laughs> There's a thirst, and it's not only for the Emirate of Sharjah. We have people who fly in from all over the region. Uh, our audiences come from uh, South Asia. We have stu university students from Pakistan that come all the time. Uh, we have people from India and Kerala that come all the time. We have people from Egypt, um, Lebanon, Sudan, Saudi Arabia. You know, So really for us, it's a regional hub, and um, it really attracts people from everywhere. Yeah. Our focus, because of the biennial, has always been contemporary. So even when we collected, we collected contemporary first. And then we started shifting with some modern, because we realized, you know, for me, when I took over, I really wanted to push. I wanted to push the boundaries and go completely contemporary. But then you have to look back and bring a, a base of something from the past to kind of set up this relationship, right? Where is this coming from? So we have an exhibition that's um, an older Egyptian sculptor that we've collaborated with the Sharjah Art Museum on because it's a more traditional classic exhibition. And then you'll see the different exhibitions we have here are more uh, contemporary artists that we work with. Yeah. So we have an exhibition of Akram Zahtari that we collaborated with on with MACBA and MMCA in Korea. And we have um, Marwan Rashmawi who received the Bonifantin Award, and I was on the jury for that one. And I, we decided to collaborate on the actual exhibition and have the exhibition here, because he's an artist we've worked with for a long time. And yeah, Bani Abidi at the, in an old house near the art museum. Uh, it's a full retrospective of every work she's ever made. That one I co-curated with that. We have Munir Farman Farmanian who is an Iranian artist who passed away last year. She participated in Sharjah Biennial in 2013, and she always said that it was the best installation of her work and wanted another exhibition. So we collaborated with IMA in Ireland to, host an, uh, to uh, curate an exhibition. Uh, unfortunately, she passed away. It opened in, in Ireland, and now it's in Sharjah, in one of our spaces in a little fishing town called Hamriya Town. We were hearing earlier, we were at the Heritage Foundation and hearing about all kind of historical culture. And I wonder if it was a, a deliberate decision, a, a deliberate push to position Sharjah in the centre of, of modern art. I grew up with Sharjah Biennial and I kept seeing the same artists again and again. And they were all like for my father, mostly in the Arab world from my father's generation. And I went to study in the UK, I went to art school at the Slade and I had a gap year. Uh, between the Slade and the Royal Academy. And I was in Berlin with my father and decided, British Schmidt from Hamburger Bahnhof told me I should go to Castle to see Documenta. Um, it was Documenta 11, it was Okwe Envisor's Documenta, and it completely transformed my life. I saw works by William Kentridge, Santa Mofakeng, Amar Kanwar, artists from the Global South, talking about politics, talking about change, and I thought, why do I have to go to Germany to see this? You know, why isn't this available where we are? Why can't we have these discussions and have them together? Why do we have to go through the West? So I came back and I said, I just want to see how the biennial works. I won't interfere. <laughs> Much. Famous last words. So um, I pushed for a lot of changes. We used to be in the Expo Center. And I thought, but we're not a trade fair. 
you know, eventually I got us out of the expo center, but we positioned ourselves here and there in the beginning and then eventually just here. And removed this idea of country representation, the Venice Biennial model. Um, I didn't want to put people in boxes and, and have them defined by one country. People are from different places. They come from diaspora, mixed marriages, whatever, you know. So I was trying to eliminate a lot of these restrictions that were in place. And six months before the opening, the committee said, do it yourself. And I said, I will do it myself. And I did. I was sweeping the floor. I was sticking labels. I called New York Times. I got a full page article in New York Times. I don't know how I managed that, but I got a full page. Learned how to make a website. Learned how to make a catalog, a really bad one, but we made it. Um, <laughs> but it was a handful of us, yeah. The artists helped out. Um, I was installing, with a, running with a spirit level, hanging works. And, you know, it was the best experience of my life, in working 20 hours a day, seven days a week. And that was the start, basically. And now it's grown into this wonderful thing. What a great story. Yeah, that's my story. <laughs> Sheikha Hua Al-Kasimi, President and Director of Sharjah Art Foundation. And finally, I went to the Sharjah Institute for Heritage and met Dr. Abdulaziz Al-Musalam, the chairman, who started by telling me about the history of the Institute. They were... Um a department in Sharjah controlling all the cultural uh, activities in Sharjah. They used to call it Department of Culture. And we were part of that department. I'm talking about uh, 1981, um, 82. And um, from this department, we uh, now you have eight organizations in Sharjah. They were all under one umbrella, it's Department of Culture. And um, so th this institute now, we are focusing on the intangible heritage. So we collect, we preserve, and uh, we do research in the cultural heritage, the intangible side. And how does this feed in then to Sharjah as World Book Capital? I think uh, Sharjah, um, I mean, uh, getting uh, its image First of everything, it's heritage. Even the last title Sharjah got now, that what they call it, the uh, creative cities, it's on handicrafts and uh, folk, uh, folk music. So, I mean, uh, one of the main image of Sharjah is heritage. And the cultural heritage, as we say, starting from 1998, when Sharjah became the uh, Arab... Uh, cultural capital, the heritage was one of the uh, aspects for the uh, title. So I think that we, we are leading now the uh, GCC countries and the Arab worlds in the cultural heritage um, map. And we are now one of the best institute in the um, collecting and publishing of cultural heritage. So um, if you um, see the map of the culture in Sharjah, I think from, from my view, the heritage is the number one. And then the art, then the other things coming, but the heritage is number one. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, 
maybe oh, um, you ha- you find another Emirates working in heritage, but they are working on something. It's available everywhere. If they talk about coffee, everywhere you can find coffee. Everywhere you can find majlis. Everywhere you can find uh, falconry. But what we are working on, it's not not anymore. You can find it anywhere, just with us. I mean, the fairy tales, the wisdom, the specific handicrafts, and uh, preparing um, groups and uh, teams to work in research and in studies. It's just here in Sharjah. And we have now the biggest festival in the Arab countries and in the Middle East, what they call Sharjah Heritage Days. And we, ha- we are also working on the um, living human treasures. In uh, uh, September, we have the biggest uh, celebration for that. In, uh, we call it Narrator Day. And all these activities, all these um, outputs which coming from this institute, you cannot find it anywhere. You can find it in Europe, maybe, but not anywhere. Mm. Yeah. I understand that fairy tales are a particular interest of yours and that you are a storyteller yourself. Yeah, I'm a storyteller and I'm a, I'm a researcher also in this. And uh, most of the writers now, which they working in the fields of storyteller, actually their source is my books, not the field. I mean, uh, most of them, not maybe all of them now, the young, because what I wrote 20 years ago, it's their source now. They cannot find any storyteller now from those people who is telling about the genies or about the uh, ghost stories or any uh, other creatures, but they can find it just in my books. So I'm their source, but indeed, I like to tell stories, my spirit, I mean, in storytelling, although I'm... uh, uh, a poetry writer and I'm a researcher in oral history but my real field is the storytelling. And those stories that in, in your books, those are fairy tales that have come down its oral history from centuries, you're recording what's already known. Yeah, I, I started recording from um, 1986 uh, and still I'm, you know, um, I have like a well and I'm getting whatever I want from those records. And uh, I started uh, with uh, my family, then I went to other places in Sharjah, then I went to other Emirates and mountain areas, the uh, Bedouin areas. And I think I collected as much as I can. And I uh, I had uh, many choices that time because, you know, we are we were still near to that period which we can call a heritage now or um so i, I think uh, the chance which i get nobody got that, uh, now no, nobody can get it now and even that time everybody telling um no it's it's there it's available we know it but i didn't say that i went to the field and i collected uh, as much as i i can that time and um I think I have many keys from that period now, and uh, that's which uh, keeping me always uh, trusting myself, trusting my uh, output also from the uh, books or other programs. Is it possible to give us a, a brief idea of the types of themes that run through the fairy tales, or even to give us an example of a, a short fairy tale? Uh, I made a study um, seven years ago about the like I made the categories for the fairy tales 
so I have my uh, my categories, which I I say it always. There is a jinni fairy tales, and there is a humans fairy tales, and there is the um, planets fairy tales. I have a six or five types of fairy tales which I am working on, and this is my categories. So some of them, which you can find them all over the world, if you are talking about the, like you're talking about Cinderella, we have, the, I think, the original copy here in the desert, the Cinderella, which gone with the travelers, the Arabs, when I mean, 1,000 years ago. And other um, uh, fairy tales, which is famous now in the world, I think you can find them even here in the desert. I read once for one of the researchers, uh, he's American, he said, I believe that the Persians and the Indians, they are the real creators of the fairy tales. But the fact that the Arabs who distribute those all over the world. So I think we are one of the best storytellers here because if you go out to the desert, you'll find nothing. We don't have black forests. We don't have, I mean, uh, jungles. We don't, but we have nothing. So we built everything internally. So that's why you will find the Arab storyteller. He's very rich, although he came from very um, a naked nature. You know, <laughs> it's it's nothing in this nature. But uh, this is the the uh, the the real uh, theory that in the rich place you can find artists who can draw or make sculptures but in the environment like this you can find a storyteller or oral history teller and that's your winter weekend from the united arab emirates giving you a blast of heat and art here on monocle 24 i'm georgina godwin thank you for listening been listening to the Monocle Weekends podcast. Catch the live programme every Saturday from 8am London time via the Monocle 24's iPhone app on your desktop or using the TuneIn Radio smartphone app.